0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional teal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate from the life they're now able to live to the person they've become along the way as they pursued their dreams and having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to begin by first thanking you for listening in. And for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions, or questions directly to me at CEO at raincanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N And if you're inclined, I'd very much appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends, your family, other people you know, and yes, even people you don't know rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It's definitely appreciated. I was initially introduced to my guest, Leanne Hackman-Carty, by her sister Deidre, who my wife Stephanie and I are working on a business project with. And what really caught my attention about Leanne, aside from her Incredibly impressive resume and list of accomplishments, and the work that she does was the title of her book series she released in 2017, titled Master Your Disaster. And I felt I just have to bring this topic into the awareness of listeners. From floods to fire and anything in between, this series is a readiness response and recovery guide for families, for businesses, and for communities. And I can only wonder how prepared are we really for disaster? You know, Fort McMurray being one example, fires in California being another example. How prepared are communities? How prepared are we? So a couple of highlights of Leanne's long list of work that she does and has done is is since 2009, she served as the chief executive officer for Economic Development Alberta, which is Alberta's economic development network. And in June 2017, Leanne launched a pilot project to roll out the International Economic Development Council Resilience Training Course for Community and Regional Leaders to four Alberta communities. And in December 2018, Leanne was invited by Virgin Unite, Richard Branson's foundation, to participate in a leadership forum in the British Virgin Islands to view firsthand the work that they're doing in the region post hurricane. So, it's about disaster, and heck, why not? Without any further delay, let's have a conversation with the master of disaster herself. Leanne hackman Cardi. welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thank you. How are you doing today, Leanne? Oh, I'm good. We've only really recently kind of met, and this is our truly our first extended conversation, so, you know, in a meaningful kind of way, and uh, part of your headline is uh, you're the master of disaster, but I, I don't think you're in there creating them. And uh, I want to find out a little bit, we're going to really dig into all of that. But, you know, if, if I'm meeting you for the first time, somebody's meeting you for the first time says, Leanne, what do you do? What's your answer to that question?
1: I would say that I help individuals, businesses and communities prepare for and uh, respond to and recover from disasters.
0: That's such an interesting kind of, I guess, direction, or uh, it's an interesting business that you've entered into. And and tell me a little bit about how dealing with disasters, What 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 drew you to that, or how did that all kind of unfold? Where did you end up being the master of disaster?
1: Well, I guess I, like many other people, just kind of fell into it by chance. Um, It was in uh, 2013, when um, probably a third of Alberta was being flooded in June. And at the time, and I still run the Economic Developers of Alberta, um, I was watching this happen and thinking, okay, a third of our communities are being impacted very badly right now. So I either sit in my office and do business as usual, or I need to respond. And so I actually reached out to a colleague I have in uh, Washington, DC, because I knew of some resources that they had uh, with respect to helping communities out. And uh, they were great. They gave me all kinds of resources and uh, that's how it all started.
0: So the flooding that was happening in 013, was that, that was, uh, I wanna say High River? Where, where, Where was that happening at the time? I don't recall.
1: Okay, so it really started in the mountains and then it slowly made its way through Canmore, uh, took out highway, uh, the Trans-Canada Highway, and then it kept coming. We watched it Then it came to Bragg Creek, uh, flooded Bragg Creek. Then it made its way to Calgary, flooded the downtown, kept going, devastated High River and kept moving along Uh, Black Diamond, Turner Valley. I mean, it was I think at some point it was about 30 communities in a state of emergency.
0: Yeah, and for those individuals that are outside of Alberta, which many listening uh could be out or, or are outside of Alberta, they're even outside of Canada. You know, you're really talking about the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, you know, western, you know, the kind of the, the west side, west end of Alberta if you say it that way. And and then southwest I guess it would be. And then it really yeah. you're you're then melting mountains. Is that I cuz I'm going back in my memory banks now what really drove that was a late was it, I think it was a late spring or a late thaw, and all of a sudden it was really happened quickly. So all the snow that was in the Rocky Mountains, I okay, case, you know, all water runs downhill as we know, and then it just started heading east and it didn't stop. And it was really quite, uh, quite remarkable the degree uh, and the amount of water that was that came off those mountains. Is, is am I being accurate in that, Leanne?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, and then if I recall correctly too, it was add some rain to that.
0: Yes. Of, so course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, uh, nobody was prepared. I mean, you know, we every, a lot of communities talk about that one in a hundred year flood. Yeah. That's becoming a lot. A hundred years happens very quickly yeah. in Alberta.
0: Yeah. And so. it's, it's happened a couple of times now, but here's the thing, cause you're sitting, I believe in Calgary or were you in Calgary? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're there, you're watching this stuff unfold on the news. What were you doing back then? Like what, what you were part of, um, sorry, uh, Alberta economic.
1: Economic developers. Yeah. Developers. developers.
0: So, yeah. So you're part of that. What else are you doing? Are you doing anything else at that time?
1: No, I mean, at that time I was running, I mean, I still run it full, uh, as a contract and, um, but it's it's uh, it's an organization that has communities across the province. And, and I mean, these are not unique. You have them in every province and state, but they are members. They're people who are in communities. They're helping businesses. They work with government. And really, their job is to make sure to retain businesses and to help them expand. So in a case like this, you've got, um, you know, this is where my interest really lies is, when you have a natural disaster, like a tornado, like a wildfire, like a flood, what happens is you've got the emergency responders that come in and they are very well-trained at what to do. They save lives, they're on the front lines, but then they leave. And the challenge really becomes that recovery. What happens when everybody leaves? What happens to all these businesses that are devastated? And that is really where you know my work has been focused since 2013. So,
0: but I want to go back a little bit, Leanne, is that you're in Calgary, you're sitting in your home, you're watching this happen. What was it that compelled you to get involved? Because there's lots of people watching the news. There's, uh, you know, lots of people that are seeing it all happen, but they're not compelled to phone a contact in Washington and say, how can I get this handled? So what, what do you think drove you to do that? Because it's an interesting... I guess it's just a, an interesting point of entry into what evolved into be uh, your business today. And so I'm just wondering what was behind or can you put your finger on what was behind that?
1: Well, this might sound kind of strange, but this has happened twice to me and I get a physical reaction and it's like a compelling feeling that I need to do something. That's that's all I can explain it as because I got the same feeling when Fort McMurray was on fire. And I just felt like I need to help and I know what I need to do and I do it.
0: Okay, so there's a couple of points of entry into that that I, I I'm pretty fascinated by personally. You know, number one, you're getting a what you call a physical reaction, whatever that might be. It's a tingly, it's a pull, it's something that is just driving you that you have to dig into it and, and you're listening to it. Now that's one part of it. Uh the other part of it is is what you said there is. And I just know what to do. Well, where does that come from? Is that a, you know, is that how your brain works? Are you, you have a background in problem solving? Are you an engineer by trade? You know, what is it that you know what to do?
1: I have never been in a job where I had a job description. I've always been in a role starting right out of university, where it was basically here. This is kind of what I want you to do. Go do it. So I've always been in a situation where I thought, okay, I got, I have no framework. I have no plan A, B, C, D. This is what I do. So I've kind of, that's just my brain. It's been wired over 30 years to say, okay, give me a problem and let me go fix it. Let me go figure out how I would attack that problem, who I would involve, you know, in my network. And that's just kind of how my brain thinks.
0: So one of the reasons that, you know, I wanted to have you on the show, other than I think the topic is really, really quite interesting. And I, and I also, I like the, I guess the result of the work you do and, 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 but it also speaks to me about, you know, as a organization, Rain, for example, is got a lot of real estate investors. You, you mentioned Fort McMurray, you mentioned High Prairie, we mentioned Canmore. I mean, all through there. I know people who are at the effect of either of those floods. And I mean, not just as landlords or as, you know, housing providers, but, you know, people who live there. But my point is, is that, you know, as we talk about disaster and we talk about the inevitability of a disaster, because we, you uh, know, it's always the case is it'll never happen here or we don't think it will or we're not pre- and we're not prepared for it. So. Let's let's go back a little bit. And I want to talk about you know the preparation. I want to talk about Fort McMurray. I know that's of high interest to many, and and certainly you know what is it today. So there's a part of it where you went in, you saw Fort McMurray burning down. You saw, as an example, High Prairie flooding, and and the areas in between. Uh, are you also doing follow up in those areas, Leanne?
1: Uh, well, in in uh, Fort McMurray, uh, we I worked with them for just over a year on uh, their business and economic recovery. And one of during that time we took up a team and so the fires were in May of 2016 we took up a team in Ju- January of 2017 and didn't uh, uh, we interviewed over 200 different groups individuals and really got a handle of impact. So what was it like before the the, the fire what was it like during what is it like now and where where do you see the biggest challenges going forward? So we met with a number of individuals, like I said, and, and at the end of the day, we gave them a report saying, these are the things that we would recommend from a short-term, medium-term, and long-term recovery standpoint. And um, you know, part of the, the, the uniqueness of Fort McMurray was there was an economic downturn before um, the, the fires hit. And so for, you know, there were a number of people laid off. The oil companies were laying off people. So houses were, our house prices were already starting to go down. And then you have the fire. And I think it, at its height where I saw it was about 15, almost 1600 structures were burnt. And to the point where when I met with the planning department, uh, they said that even before they could start the rebuild, they had to survey people's property lines because even their pegs, their steel pegs that show where the property lines are, they were melted. So, you know, all of a sudden you go, okay, so even if you wanted to rebuild tomorrow, you can't because you don't know where your property line is. So that, that was an, uh, something they had to deal with. But, you know, in that case, and in every disaster case, I mean, you've got individuals whose homes, so, you know, from your RAIN network, so you've got individuals who own a home. So they're dealing with potentially issues of rebuild, of repair. You've got landlords. I know in that case, there were a number of landlords. Well, some of the issues that came up were, hey, I'm not in my building, but my landlord still wants me to pay rent. I get that. (laughs) You know, you need to make money, but businesses were faced with this too. Businesses had no... Uh, ability to be in their facility for at least a month, but they were being asked to pay all these bills, including their rent. So, you know, even from a landlord perspective, you think: so if I'm a landlord, how will I deal with situations like that? If I have renters, they have no ability to pay; they may not have insurance, or or the insurance is going to be a long time coming. So, you know, I think for your members, it's important for them to even think of kind of what's your business continuity plan. What it will if these scenarios happen, um, what would you do? Because, um, it, it happens.
0: And that, and, and that's an interesting, of course, because, you know, we're in the business of education, you know, we're, and we have made arrangements with underwriters. I mean, members that are, are following the system and listening to what we talk about with rain are insured. They're actually making sure that they are insured and they're, and they're actually asking to, and they're checking that their tenants are insured. That's that's a responsible, sophisticated investor approach to it. Now I know not everybody does that because ultimately they go, gosh, you know, insurance is gonna cost me a thousand bucks a year. It's gonna cost me fourteen hundred bucks a year to insure this property. Cash flows are thin. To your point, you know, property values or even at rents it started to come down in Fort McMurray. And I know people were hedging their bet. They were trying to cash flow where they could, but to your point, you have a tenant that's burnt out. Not only do they, you know, they they they're likely out of a job, or there's a you know there's a good chance that the business in a in a disaster like this, nobody's working. You know, Fort McMurray is shut down, and uh, for whatever length of time that is. So those are certainly some concerns that the municipality or the city has that they're dealing with, and then the individuals from there. So when you go in afterwards. You, are you you're are you primarily taking approach this many years into the the business that you're building and have built, Leanne? Are you are you there to clean up the mess, or are you now in a you know a preventative? Let's okay, there, there's inevitably there's going to be a mess. You just need to be prepared for it. We don't know when it's coming. It's like, so are you now advising you know a, a town, city, whatever it might be, uh, to be proactive in terms of how they prepare for the inevitability of something going south weather fires, whatever that might be.
1: Yeah, very much. Um, that, that is something that yeah, over the past year has just become something very, uh, it's something I'm much more involved in and it really does come down to that, that preparedness piece. So, I mean, the stats that we see all the time for every $1 you put into mitigation, you're going to save seven, $67 on recovery. So that to me, whether that is at a homeowner level, whether that's at a business level or a community level, that is a pretty good ROI. Uh, Because when you think about it, well, and it comes back to what we talked about earlier, most people don't believe, and I think it's human nature, you don't believe it's going to happen to you. It'll never happen to you until it does. And then you go, shoot, I should have thought of this, that, and maybe I should have done that differently. So what I'm trying to do is get into communities early and say, look, the worst time to exchange business cards is during a disaster. You need to know who's in your community beforehand and say at a a community level, it's even more important. What businesses are in your community? What are they like? How do you even get in contact with them? are your major industrial, you know, property owners or commercial owners, or how do you get, like in the case of Fort McMurray, when everybody is out of the community, nobody's allowed in. You got 80,000 people gone across the country. Even in my case, I was trying to connect with the economic developers. They were in Newfoundland, Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton. And so you go, okay, so how do you even run a business? How do you even connect with each other when you're all over the place? They didn't even know what was um, physically left. I mean, you're watching these these terrible uh, videos on the news and you think, is my business even there anymore? Is my house even there anymore? So all of that stress and anxiety of not even knowing if your business or your house or your property is still around. To me, the thing that kind of motivates me to do what I do is I know. There are things you can do in advance that will make sure your impact is not as great. And that, to me, is a pretty good reason to do what I do.
0: So you're dealing with uh, the municipality or, your, or economic development officer. What, what office are you actually working with in, in terms of preparation?
1: In the case of um, uh, Fort, both Fort McMurray and the stuff I did in the in the floods in 2013, it was the economic development group with the municipality. Uh, some of the work I'm doing now—it's actually with their director of emergency management. So, you know, the people that are tasked with the emergency plan for the municipality—they're not on the business side; they're on the emergency side.
0: So, you wrote a book, uh, "Master of Disaster," and what was what was the story behind that book? So, what 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 is the intention when you wrote that book? What was that about? I have not had a chance to read it.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's master your disaster. And so what fueled me to do it was the work I was doing. I was struggling to find templates and good information. There's a ton of information out there, but I couldn't find it in one place. So I thought, okay, if I can't find it, nobody else can find it either. So I put the books together and and I I divided it in three ways. So there's the full edition that has all of the, the elements in it, and I broke it up. So there, if you're an individual wanting to prepare, here's your piece. If you're a business wanting to prepare, here's your piece. And communities, here's how you prepare. And each one has templates. Because I just thought, instead of reinventing the wheel every time, just use something that is valuable and has what you need. And because really, in the, when you're in a disaster, and, and the, I mean, anyone knows when you're in a crisis, you do not think straight. You actually think you're the only one who went through it and you make poor decisions. So I'm just trying to say, hey, how about we just give you some good information, some valuable templates, and help you in your preparation.
0: So let's walk through this a little bit. I think it's an interesting topic, because ultimately, these things do happen. And I, you know, I hear what you say is, you know, everybody lives in the world of, they don't think about it, they put it off. It's not even that they don't think it'll happen to them. It's kind of a bit of wishful thinking that, geez, maybe it won't happen to me, or or I'll worry about it when the time comes, or I'll have time to prepare. And, you know, as you watch cities that are flooded, and people are walking through water, or they got their fishing boats, and, you know, rowing down Main Street, it's going, okay, so yes, it, it does happen. So let's just walk through, like, if there was a, if there was, a, from an individual basis, do you you know what's the thought process to get going? You know, I think it would be overwhelming for some people if you said, "Okay, master your disaster." Give me an example of somebody, as an individual, is preparing for an inevitability. Now, maybe in hindsight, you know what went on in Fort McMurray, you know what happened in Camor, I Prairie—one's water, one's fire. Uh, but what are you suggesting, for example, that you know somebody sits down and do? Where do they even start if they're preparing for? you know, a potential disaster and they want to make sure they're prepared for it. What does that mean to you?
1: Well, I think at an individual level, you just think, okay, so you and your family, what's your house look like? Do you have an upstairs? Uh, If you do and say you couldn't get down your stairs, how would you get out of the house? Do you have, say, a ladder that you can put outside one of the windows? So planning your evacuation routes, I think is something relatively simple to do because once again, when it happens, you're going to be freaked out and you're going to go, oh my gosh, where do I go? I didn't think I uh, have no access through the stairs. So, you know, thinking something like that through having an emergency kit ready. Uh, there's lots of 72 hour emergency kits you can get where it just gives you uh, things that you might need in the case of an emergency, having your documents ready, because say it's your passports, it's things like that are really important to your insurance policy. That, that, and that's one of the things that in my checklist It's like, get these things, copies of them ready, get them into something like a, a, a go-to bag you can take with you. Because when it happens, like you don't want to spend the first 72 hours figuring out where, who do I call for my insurance? Who, What's my policy number? Where's my banking information? Like all of that stuff, you can have in advance to just say, okay, this, this is something that I'm ready to do. Having something simple like, you know, your fire and carbon monoxide alarm, something like that to, as an advance kind of, mitigation piece maybe your drainage on the outside of your house is it is it in a way that actually can help you avoid flooding so make sure that that is good your shingles your siding one of the things that homeowners find is disasters actually point out vulnerabilities you didn't know you had so if you've got something like loose shingles or something on your house pretty much you got a tornado it's gonna they're go, they're gone or you know strong winds so just taking some of those mitigation Things are pretty, re- like they're relatively simple, um, but it just takes, you know, and maybe ha- make it fun. Sit down with your kids around the table and go, oh, okay, so if, if a flood happened, what would we do? Who would we call? If you were at school, where, where would we meet? You know, those kinds of things are just helpful. And, and then you don't live with that anxiety and stress of, we've never talked about this before. I have no clue what we're doing. And, and you know, your recovery is that much worse.
0: Well, you know, there's I've seen predominantly US and I don't know if that's just because that's where media focuses it could be lots of individuals in Canada that way. I don't I don't know one way or the other. It's not really important, but you know, you see survivalists who literally have trailers of food and weapons. They're like the on the extreme side of it. They rehearse, you know, getting out of their house in the dark and they they like well, I say rehearse they have drills where they're actually doing that with their family. So that might be a little bit extreme, but having said that, those are the individuals that will probably most likely to survive if something happens. Yeah. But what you, you did say something that was quite interesting, which is we've heard before many stories about, you know, you've got 10 minutes to evacuate or you've got five minutes to evacuate. What do you grab? You know, there's all sorts of stories around that. And people generally run in and, you know, run around in circles and end up grabbing pictures and running out with the pictures. That seems to be the thing, right? But I think you make an interesting point from a, a total convenience point of view, from a total understanding. And, and you don't know what the disaster is. Electronics, for example, may not be accessible. Having your computer, like uh, I, we had to evacuate when we lived downtown Vancouver. We had to leave the building. It was a fire and it was a real fire. We actually had to leave. And I mean, both my wife, Stephanie, and I, and we grabbed our laptops. I mean, that was everything that mattered was there, if any place. Right. But, my, but what you said was interesting. Where are your insurance documents? Where are where are those important paperwork, a passport? Where is your identification? Uh, you know, are you prepared that way and can you just grab a bag and go? So that's an interesting an interesting uh consideration in in those in those situations. From a landlord point of view, you know, we talked briefly about it before, you know, what the interview. If I'm uh, you know, rental housing provider, I'm, I want to be responsible, uh, sophisticated. What am I trying to support my tenant in doing? You got any insights? What would I do as a landlord? What might I consider saying to a tenant or making sure that my tenants are clear on?
1: Well, one of, one of the things that I know that I, when I'm out teaching, I said, you know what? When, be that person that when people are most in need, you're there because they will remember that. And uh, so, you know, as a, as, a, as a good landlord, I mean, obviously you'd want to make sure you've got the most current information for who's in your building. You know, things like you talked about Rain is doing, where you, you're encouraging people have the right insurance in place. Um, because, you know, that's part of my responsibility, but it's being a good uh, a landlord to you, making sure that you're covered because maybe they don't know what they need to have as far as being covered being understanding because you know everyone's situation's different if they are out of your your building for a long extended period of time you know is there anything you can do to help them do you have other properties that maybe they could move into you know it's just just being human and just saying and compassionate and saying hey you know if I was in your situation what would I want you to do for me And I get that there's always a financial piece here, but I don't know if there's insurance policies that for, from a landlord's perspective is like a business continuity insurance piece where you could have um, coverage to help tenants relocate. I'm not sure what the situation is there, but um, just to me, it's just helping walk through that difficult situation with, with basically your clients.
0: What's interesting. In yeah. And what's interesting about this is the first step in all of this is to have an awareness around it. I mean, what you're bringing really up for me in all of this is that it's probably not thought of a lot. Like people, there's going to be those individuals like yourself who who it is not necessarily top of mind, but they actually have thought about it. They've got some kind of a plan together. I mean, this is a conversation my wife, Stephanie, and I have been in many times over the years. And, and we have certain we have actually emergency contingency plans in our in our own world. You know, how, if there was a flood, if there was a fire, what are we doing? And But it also is is a reminder to revisit it, you know, uh, a couple of three times a year. In our case, maybe that would cover it. But it's first is having the awareness around it. Let's go up to a municipal level. So, you know, if I'm an, you know, and I, I'm not looking at it from an investor point of view. I'm also looking at it just as from a community point of view is what kind of, you know, what should I be if I was to if I was gonna invest in a in a I don't know if I'm gonna invest in a small town or a smaller center, I don't want to say small town, but a smaller center. Am I actually, you know, should I be going to economic development office and saying, okay, so I'm investing here, i have got tenants in this here, I've got a multifamily building, I've got whatever. Is that a question that I should be able to walk into the economic development office and, and expect an answer from? What's your what's your what's your plan? Should there be a flood? Should there be a fire? Because it's showing up, right? And and now, in the case of Alberta, even and of course, right across the country, we're having those scenarios occur.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, because I'm a little bit biased when it comes to economic developers, I think that they're well situated because they they have a great relationship with their council and their business community, so they're able to kind of walk both sides of the line. and And so, most of them, um, if they're not situated closely with the planning department, they know who to call in order to get that kind of information. Because obviously as an investor, you need to do your due diligence too, right? It's like, so if you're going to buy property in a, a heavily forested area or along a coastline or a floodplain or by airports or railways, all those things potentially have additional risks to them. So they can say, okay, yeah, you, you got a, a railway going through the side of your property that potentially, you know, you look at what happened at Lac-Begantic it may or may not happen. You may be near a highway or a pipeline, or, or you know, in an area that's a floodplain. And yeah, sure, you're getting a better deal for it. But if you choose to buy there, and there's an added risk, making sure that you've mitigated for that risk somehow.
0: Yeah, I guess it. You know, it's never a problem till it's a problem. You know, it's that's the thing about it, right? It's like it's. We can choose to ignore it and not prepare for it, or we can say okay, what? how do we need to prepare and what does it mean? It doesn't mean going extreme. It doesn't mean losing sleep over it. But ultimately, it's about a plan and putting things together. When you reflect on what happened in any of these centres that you've been part of, you know, let's use Fort McMurray as an example. What do you think that we learned from that particular disaster? What did Fort McMurray, you know, what did the city of Fort McMurray learn from that disaster?
1: Well, I think... Um You know, and sometimes lessons are short and sometimes they're long. I know one of the things they did in the short term was they did a program, a fire smart program. And so it really was to create a fire break around the community in order to help lessen a potential impact. Part of the the other side of that is interesting how how short term memory works. Um, You know, they had residents that. When they moved back, they were not happy with the fire smart program. They said, "I bought my property because of those trees. I like the view." And you're going, "Okay, but uh, a couple weeks ago, that view, those trees almost burnt down your house." Right. So you know it, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, I mean, everybody wants to live on the coast. Everyone wants to live on the beach. Uh, but when the hurricane hits, it's not so much fun.
0: Well, of course, we, and, we, and we saw that in California. I mean, when you look at what's going on and what the fires in California, what, what wiped it out? And the reality is, is that some people are going to want to move back there and it's going to, you know, potentially it will, all, it will all repeat itself. So take me back a little bit about here you are, you've obviously got a very strong social conscience. That's, and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm reading into and seeing in all of this. What's your study in university, Land?
1: Well, I started at the University of Alberta in the Faculty of Arts. I took political science and sociology. Yes. Then I applied and got accepted to the University of Calgary for social work, just like you said.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay.
1: But it was always the community side of it. I was never going to be a a one-on-one counseling or anything. It was the community side of it. So that's, and then I took some marketing and economic development. So that's my background. And it's kind of bizarre. But when I think about it, each of those actually has has influenced what I do.
0: Now, do you, when you go back in, you know, in your early years, where your were your parents of, uh, you know, were they strong in the community? Do you have a do you have a history growing up within your family that they're, you're a big part of the community and there was some social conscious around that? Where do you where did it all stem from?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, my parents very much, I mean, they grew up in a very, you know, on a farm and they have that kind of sense of community in that respect and very involved in the church. And so always volunteering for something and we would get hooked into doing stuff as well. So yeah, very strong social background. Anytime they would, you know, someone would not have a family for Christmas, we would be having them at our dinner table and going, who are you? Right. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's just very much, that's how I was raised.
0: When you consider that, you know, as you sit today, business owner, entrepreneur, did that stem from, uh, you know, what I often refer to as my own entrepreneurial accident, but I, I often see that with entrepreneurs. It was, you know, it wasn't even all that big a plan, but it it truly was an entrepreneurial accident, which sounds a little bit like how this all evolved, but was there other businesses prior to this that you were involved in, Leanne?
1: Yeah, I've, um... I've always had that entrepreneurial bent and I think it is, it's genetic. I think it comes from my family. And uh, so I've always, no matter what I've done, I've I've looked at it with an entrepreneurial lens. When I first kind of went out on my own and decided, okay, I'm going to do this, this, have my own business. To be honest. I mean, I had, I known now what I didn't know then, maybe I wouldn't have done some of the stupid things I did, but I honestly thought, well, what the heck you got to try it. If it fails, well, it fails, we try something else. And so that's just kind of how my journey has gone. And I think most entrepreneurs are like that. Yeah,
0: you know, it's, yeah for sure. It's, and what's interesting about you have a farming background and this deep into the, you know, the, the everyday millionaire, I would almost say 100% of the time, but I'll, I'll hedge my bet and say 95% of the time, if somebody came from a farming background, the likelihood of them being entrepreneurial is, is like like i say 95% it seems that many of my guests or all of my guests that have had a farming background are also entrepreneurs they're also business owners they've also stepped into that world and and i think that's as you're saying that i'm actually thinking to myself hmm you know it makes sense as a farmer because really as a farmer that's what you are you're you're a business owner you're you're running a business called the farm it's hard work everybody's working hard you have to be innovative you're dealing with all of the things that you're dealing with as a farmer and and you know commodity prices and weather and, you know, animals and all the things that farmers deal with. So it's just an interesting, I just, when you said it, it, it kind of struck a chord with me.
1: Well, and when you think about it, they are probably the original masters of disaster because it's true. Like they, they have so many things that are out of their control every single year. Yes. And and yet they keep trying and, and, you know, figuring out a way to make some money because they have to. And so they're classic.
0: So is there a, um, if there was lessons that you've learned along the way in, in this, in this past few years of the work that you're doing, is there a common other than lack of preparation? Is there, you know, if you're giving guidance to individuals, to municipalities, what have you learned along the way? Is there some glaring things that continually show up that you just shake your head and go, what the heck is going on here? Why did this happen? Like it, You know, share with us some of those, you know, that experience and those insights, Leanne, if you can.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that always amazes me, and maybe it's, uh, it shouldn't, it's people truly do feel they're the first one to go through this every time. And so it's like, no, you'll never understand. Well, actually, there are people who have been through it. And the beauty of people who have been through a disaster is they want to pay it forward. They want to help you so you don't have to go through what they went through. And they have tons of lessons learned. So that's one of the things that I love these technical teams. The one like we did in Fort Mac, I put together 10 people who have expertise. Some of them have gone through tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, whatever it is. They have all kinds of um, experience in these areas and they come in and they want to help and they get it and for someone on the front lines that is dealing with this sometimes at a personal level and a professional level there's something really powerful about having people come in and walk with you and, and and have your back and give you advice and very sound advice when you really don't know what to do and you can't admit that
0: yeah because there's all sorts of aspects to it i mean there's certainly the compassion that's and empathy somebody would have that have gone through it but also the actual experience of having gone through it. There's probably some things that would save time, energy, emotional strain, if you will, if somebody can just tell you what's what you got to look forward to, what you need to deal with, here's what you need to pay attention to. Keep going on that list. What else are you seeing? So, you know, first off, you're not the first to have gone through it, and which would then lead me to believe that don't be shy about asking for help or reaching out for some kind of help, whether it be, and it could be as simple as just dealing with the emotional strain that you might be feeling around the loss or whatever happened with that. I mean, and there could be loss of not only material things, but family, pets. I mean, gosh, there's all sorts of stuff that these things can bring up for people. And and so the message that I'm hearing you is you're not the first to have gone through it. Make sure that you're talking about it and you're reaching out for help. Would that be a fair statement, Leanne?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think when I think of your your um your group, the rain group, a lot of times you see these ambulance chasers, towards storm chasers, whatever you want to call them. But you know, if you don't have a good procurement policy or or process in place in communities, you'll have people that show up and they don't have, you know, they're not certified tradespeople and they do shoddy work and they come into communities and they prey on vulnerable people and they do shoddy, you know, repairs and then they leave town. So, I mean, that's another thing that's very common. So, you know, working, I think communities in advance, maybe industry associations, having some of that credibility piece figured out in advance. So yeah, if you want someone to come and do your plumbing, then here, call this person or call, you know, these are people that we trust. And sometimes too, the locals are the ones that you know, first of all, they're hit with the disaster. And then I know in the case of Fort McMurray, there was a lot of early on the construction association up there was going to the public or the media because they were very uh, annoyed that all these, these con- construction people were coming in from outside of town. So first of all, you have the impact of the disaster and then you're not even going to use the locals to help on the rebuild. So, you know, figuring out ways in advance to say, okay, if this happens to us, then let's figure out who do we have locally that can actually, maybe they have equipment that can be used. Maybe they have a skill set that we can be using, you know, and and certifying these people or qualifying them in advance. These are things that are valuable because if it happens, you want to actually support your locals on, on some of this activity that takes place because they're going to be hurting for revenue in that first, uh, you know, up to a year.
0: Well, in the case of a Fort McMurray, um, there was also a volume issue, right? Because you've got, let's say you've wiped out 1,600 homes in Fort McMurray. I mean, that's a lot of construction that is going on. And when we think about Slave Lake, I think it was, uh, I think that was an interesting, there was some interviews done by residents of Slave Lake at the time or just after the Fort McMurray disaster. And I don't remember what year Slave Lake happened, where Slave Lake went up in flames. And it was almost... Uh, residents were saying it was almost ten years before they felt like it was back to some sense of normalcy. Some where the the actual impacts of the fire in Slave Lake uh, were were no longer really felt. There was the memories, and 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 Slave Lake, in some regards, blossomed after it because of the rebuilds that went on. So we look at you know the the length of time things take and what it takes to rebuild a community. So that's just an interesting, I don't know. I guess I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say that it, the rebuild takes time, having some background, some experience, the volume issue of what has to be done and has to be accomplished, then of course they're going to uh, reach outside of that. So let's go back to uh you know when we when you go across Canada, do you work outside of Alberta as well or you are does your business take you outside to disasters outside of Alberta and you know we talk about High River, not High Prairie, got it? And Slave Lake, uh, Fort McMurray, those are really big. What What's some other stuff that is happening outside of Alberta, for example? Do you get outside of Alberta with your business?
1: Yeah, I actually have a partnership with a, a company. It's called the Institute for Sustainable Development. They're out of Washington. And I've been working with them for about a year. And uh, we're, we're looking at um, California, actually. I might be going into there, uh, just given the wildfire experience that I have. Um, and uh, we're talking uh, to Saipan. So Saipan is actually one of those uh, islands in Micronesia that got hit with, a—I think it was a Category 6 uh, hurricane or typhoon is what they call it, uh, back probably in December. And it's an island uh, that just was devastated. And then I was actually in British Virgin Islands in um, December and Virgin Gorda was uh, very badly hit and uh, toured the school there and uh, talked to the woman who's actually with British Virgin Islands uh, Unite. It's a Richard Branson Foundation and talked to her about some of the stuff that they're going to be needing to do in the near future. So, yeah, it's, it's the kind of skill set that does, uh, you know, it has application on an international uh, platform.
0: So you're going in and you're going in after the disaster. So there's two sides to it. So you're going in to help, I don't know, clean up the mess, if you will, or whatever guidance you supply or provide there, but also preventative. So when you look at the preventative side of it, do you think that there's just not enough preventative stuff going on uh, with cities or municipalities and, and they're just not paying attention and, and that's all hindsight, right? I mean, you know, I'm sure Fort McMurray in hindsight says, well, we could have, should have done this or that is, are you able to, do you believe have an impact to go in beforehand with an economic development, uh, you know, with a, uh, with an office and say, you need to pay attention to this. And here's some things that you must, must do.
1: Yeah. Well, I, th- I think in, in Canada, we're, we're not there yet. And that's why some of the stuff I'm doing in the U.S. is so exciting, because they've had so many more disasters to deal with. They've got a lot more history and a lot more practice on what works. Now, they're not perfect, but they've got some good models. One of the things that I know in Canada, from an emergency preparedness piece, most municipalities have an emergency plan in place. They have to. Uh, So you've got your guy at the fire department, your paramedics. I mean, they have a plan. But their plan ends when the disaster, you know, technically the safety issues are dealt with and then they leave. My issue is what happens after they leave, because that's where communities do not have recovery frameworks in place and nobody's in charge and resources get wasted and the recovery then takes a lot longer than it should have. So to me, it's that. So working with communities now to say, okay. What is your recovery framework? Because it is not the same as your emergency response. It's different people. It is, there are different organizations, a different structure has to be put in place. And so you need to put that piece up in front or you will have kind of a second disaster after the fact.
0: That recovery piece is such an interesting, you know, to me, I look at it and I go, you got to think about, number one, depending on the scale of the disaster and." when you're wiping out, you know, the majority of a town, I mean, gosh, even the leaders are at the effect of it. You know, they've lost their homes, you know, those individuals that are even on what we would call first responders, they may be dealing with their own home losses or their own, you know, disaster. So in the recovery, you know, aside from the emergency side of it, I mean, I guess that's where we call in, you know, an army, that's where we call in our military to, to support, and, and do all of those things. And is there a connection? Because there's where the preparedness seems to be always, we rely on our military for that kind of thing. And everything from rebuilding to some kind of policing and all of the issues that can go on after those scenarios. Is there a connection that you have with the military in that regard? Are you following some of their guidelines or are you working with them in, uh, con- and connecting the dots as well, yeah?
1: Well, that's where we're trying to make that connection because some of the decisions that are made in the response period can actually negatively impact your economy and your business community. So what we're trying to do is educate some of those uh, first responders to say, okay, so when you're in the emergency operations center, who is giving you information on what the current business needs are? Because mm, I would guess most of them aren't getting that information. So, you know, some of the models in the U.S. are they have a business recovery center that has a liaison with the emergency operations center, and they're communicating on a daily basis saying, okay, businesses, this is their greatest need today. You need to, you know, this business absolutely needs to access their facility or they're going to lose, you know, a certain percentage of their inventory. So there's those kinds of things um, that, that can be a lot, and it comes down to communication, really, but it has to be integrated a lot more and it, it it's not. And and when I go teach communities and there's elected officials in the room, I'm telling them, "Please, if there is one message I want you to leave with today, it's when you have an emergency in your community, you have two audiences. You're talking to your residents, but you need to be talking to your business community too because nobody is." So just say something like, "Hey, if you have a business and you've been impacted, I'm going to be coming back tomorrow or look at our website and we're going to be providing information about resources for you because we care about you and we we know you're hurting too and we want to make sure that you stay in our community. So these these are just simple things but when you don't talk to businesses, trust me, I mean they're going to go where they're going to have the opportunity to be successful and if you don't talk to them and you, they're not part of your plan, and you've actually made decisions that make it worse for them, they may just pick up their things and move to another community.
0: Do you happen to have any any results of that in a Fort McMurray, for example? Land did, was there was there a lot of businesses? Do you know if was there a lot of businesses that left Fort McMurray, or did most of them hang out and tough it through?
1: I don't know the stats on that. I do know that when we were talking, there was they didn't know whether about ten to fifteen thousand people were going to come back. So I assume part of those are businesses. Now, this once again, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's hard to tell was it the economic downturn that actually pushed them over the edge, you know, that they were planning to leave anyways, they were hurting already, or was it the fire? Because even the impact on, you know, there's that false economy that happens right after the fire. Sure. And, you know, if say if you know, there's there's people come into town, the recovery workers, they're buying things, they need to have places to stay, but then they leave. So I think it's very hard for a community to even know when they get back to that new normal. And, and then you say, okay, so as a business, do I have this, do I have my market back? Because it's, you know, sometimes you don't get it back.
0: For the listeners on, you know, of this particular podcast, if you're giving listeners guidance and because it's just a general public, but many of them are business owners, they're real estate investors, they're entrepreneurs uh, and and many of them are very, very engaged in their community. You know, if you're giving them advice or guidance as to what to do or how to get involved, is there some things that you would make suggestions that they would maybe take action? So if I'm a listener and I'm listening to this going, gosh, what do I do? How can I do that? Was there some, some guidance that you could give? Would you, was there some steps that they could take? And I don't want to put you on the spot, Leanne. I'm just wondering if there's, if that's part of, you know, your own thought processes, how do you get people engaged to be responsible in their community?
1: Well, I think it comes down to kind of those three levels again. So at an individual level, what can you do? If you're a homeowner, you know, there are steps you can do to make sure you're safe, that you've mitigated your risk. I mean, you can't mitigate for everything. There's still something that could happen you didn't think about, but being sure that you've thought of as many things as possible to be prepared at an individual level. And then if you're at a business level, so you've got a number of of investment properties, you know, understanding, so where are your risks there? Whether it's location, whether it's, you know, um, your, your insurance coverage.
0: Quality of the property. Is it actually a safe property for your tenant? Do your tenant have a, a... And although there's lots of not only zoning, but there's codes that have to be followed when you're putting suites in units, et cetera. I mean, ultimately it's being responsible... Property owner, responsible landlord, saying: Is my property safe? If there is there an escape route? Can they get out the windows? Can they get out the doors? All of those those kinds of things. Is my electrical up to speed? Is my furnace? You know, is it old and tired? Where are the risks? And are they? You know, do I have actual risks? But I, when we talk about natural disasters, whether it be flooding or fire, that you know, to the in the extreme cases of these, I guess it's it's really paying attention to: Do you have fire extinguishers? Have you, you know, have you typed out maybe a, an escape route or an escape plan that you've talked through with your with your tenant and or your property management company has talked through with your tenant? That would be some things that come to mind quickly.
1: Yeah, because actually, you know, when you think about it, I mean, this truly is about saving lives, saving livelihoods and saving quality of life in the community. I mean, that's really what this is all about. And so you think how, what role do I have in helping save lives, save my livelihood and contribute to the quality of life in my community. So, I mean, that's, if you look at it in those three kind of lenses, maybe that kind of helps shed some light on. So then what does that mean to me personally and from my business?
0: Now, you know, the, you have the book. So if I'm picking up the book, what am I learning from the book? What am I, what am I reading? And, and are you doing a step-by-step plan in there? Are you sharing stories? What's, what's the, you break the book down into three different places um, in three different categories and so we didn't we haven't got to the third category yet so then you're talking individually you're talking business and then you're talking at a municipal level I'm uh, if that's the correct language to use yeah so let's talk about the third so the municipal level you're actually speaking to an economic development team for example and and suggesting here's what we've learned here's what you need to be paying attention to is that the idea behind it
1: yeah, yeah. I actually do a training, a community resilience training course. And we try and the, the target market we try to get in on that is the, your elected officials, your planners, your chamber of commerce, your economic developers, your housing infrastructure people, like whoever may have a, a role to play your nonprofits, like someone on your social agency side, but getting them all in a room first and saying, okay, let's talk about disasters. What does it mean? What, what are we even talking about? and I teach them about those principles and what are some of the common challenges that happen. And then going into, so what are some solutions? What are some things you could be doing right now in your community to start this discussion, to start building this capacity so you are ready if and when it happens. So that's really that community piece and the recovery side in particular, because like I said, uh, communities have emergency plans. They do not have recovery frameworks.
0: And what about the insurance companies? Now, are you working with insurance companies in terms of how supporting risk mitigation? So, the, for example, is there a training program that would help me reduce my cost of insurance because I've gone through this training program? Is, that, is there such an animal that exists? Is that uh, an initiative that you've, that you've been working on? Is that even available?
1: It's not, but it's something that it's funny because when I did the business book, I thought, you know, every year I get something uh, like a gift basket from my insurance company, uh, my broker. And I was thinking, you know what, I would rather you give me my book and say, Hey, as an insurer, I would like you to take some, you know, here's something to help you prepare. Cause at the, I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, I'm going to probably spend less on you because you're prepared, but I'm, I'm caring about you to help you prepare. So, you know, I, I do, it's on my to-do list, but I, I haven't done it yet. I know in, um, Fort McMurray, when they had, after everyone was allowed to go back in, they had what was called a business recovery center. The business, they could go in this one location and access a number of resources. One of which was uh, IBC had a presence, I believe. So they were able to meet with people and talk through their insurance policies. And even that was an interesting thing because I know one guy, uh, one of the businesses, uh, one of my colleagues met with, had the same insurance broker for two of his businesses. One had business continuity insurance and the other did not. And he had no clue. He bought different policies. So, you know, even you know, there is a big role for insurance brokers to, to become more educated in, in, in selling their products to businesses because most businesses don't read. I mean, you know how big insurance policies are. They're like a book. Who, who reads them? But understanding what you do and do not have, it is worth your time.
0: You know, that's one of the things that we did as an organization, because, you know, literally our members over the years have transacted almost 40,000 properties. And so when we worked with the insurance company, we used, happened to use Park Insurance, who's with a great underwriter. But the point is that ultimately we looked at the policies and said, well, if something burns down we need to be able to continue to collect rent. So we, we're we one of the few that have insurance policies for our members that actually pays rent while they rebuild. You know, So you literally, if your tenants have to move out uh, because of whatever's happened, could be flood, could be fire, whatever the, the scenario is, you are literally being paid your current rent while that's happening. So the insurability and and the insurance that you carry whether it be for your business or for your, your, your housing, in this case, as a landlord really becomes an important uh, issue that you don't want to step over. You want to be paying attention to that because if you're down for six months or eight months while they rebuild for whatever reason, then you're out that rent, that rental income. And that can be, uh, uh, that can cost you a lot of money.
1: And yeah, and I want to actually congratulate you on doing that because that's fantastic. And I might even use you as an example in my (laughs) training because I think that's great.
0: Well, we, you know, that was the one thing that we negotiated many years ago for our community, for our members, because, you know, with, with that kind of horsepower in terms of negotiating, the you know the underwriter was was willing to step up and really make some concessions for us strictly from a volume play i mean we have members that own you know 50 80 100 200 doors and so it becomes a really really important issue for them should something happen you talk about fort McMurray, uh you know one of our members you know the building i, I don't remember the exact doors i'm going to say it was a couple of buildings where there was almost 200 doors involved that were really burnt to the ground and uh, individual condo units. And it was really a big uh, project to, you know, to rebuild and, and they're back up finally, but the insurance really was the, the, I mean, that, that made all of the difference in the world for all of those owners that were in that building. You're the expert. You've uh, you, you do this. Tell me, Lynn, you've got a family. You're, what do you guys do? What do you do as a family? Are you all prepared? Or are you like the drywaller or the painter that, you know, <laughs> their house needs a paint job or the husband of the mas- or the spouse of the massage therapist who doesn't ever get a never gets a massage? How about you? How are you prepared?
1: Well, actually, it's funny you ask, because when I did the book, I thought, okay, I do not want to be a hypocrite. I do not want to say you should do this, but I'm not. Um, so we actually last summer uh, sat around at the lake and went through okay various scenarios where will we go here's the information uh, let, let's fill this out as a family and so but that's something that we have to continue to practice because you know the, the lake property is different than this property that we have in Calgary because the escape routes are different the you know, where people sleep is different and people forget. I mean, that's one of the things you asked about what uh, a while back about what I'm trying to teach too. And I, I actually, in the book came up with an acronym and I'm like, it's stand apart. And to me, because I need something simple to remember, the A in a part stands for what you got to do first is assess and mitigate your risks. Yes. And then the P is practice and plan, you know, like plan your um, response. And then the other A is then activate your plan, know how you're going to activate it. And then the R is recover successfully. And then the last piece is that template piece. And that's why you got to practice. Because just because you develop it today, what if you have a new person in your house? And you know, a relative comes, moves in, your dad or your mom or whatever, and things change, or you've renovated your house, or you know, phone numbers change, or so all of these things you got to keep current because. You'd hate to pull out a plan you did 10 years ago and you pull it out and go, oh my gosh, none of this current and none of us knew where to go. So,
0: you know, you bring up some interesting points in all of this conversation. So I like to break things down and and what am I taking away? What am I pulling out of this conversation? And now how old are your children, by the way? 12 and 14. So when you talk about having a family, you know, sit down and have a discussion, do you have a a thought process? Cause you don't want to scare the kids. I mean, you don't want to have them thinking about disasters all of the time. How do you position it with kids, or or do you have a do you have a philosophy, or do you have a, a a way of of saying you know at five, six, seven years old we need to have the kids walk through a little bit of a drill so they understand you know where is their bedroom located to a parents, or what happens if the disaster and they're in school, and you know it, do you go that extensive? I mean, I, I guess it it could sound a little bit like gosh, this is really heavy stuff. It's all doom and gloom. And But where do you engage, where do you think you would, what age do you think is appropriate or how do you engage children in it, Leanne?
1: Well, I think it, kids are all different, right? I mean, I know my sister and I, when we were growing up, we'd both watch the same movie and she'd have nightmares and I would sleep perfectly. So each kid is different, right? And and how they react to to information. Um, so I, the parent almost has to decide how much... Is enough because you don't want to scare them. Um, I know, even at the schools, they they have these um, drills where it's lockdown drills, and you think, holy smokes, what are they teaching them? <laughs> like, if an active shooter comes, like that's scary stuff, right? Yeah. So you, you almost have to just say, okay, let's just talk, let's and make it a little fun, and sure. you know, not make it some terrible exercise that oh my gosh, our house is blown up and what do we do? It's just so say a fire happened, like let's let's just walk through. So if we're in your room, uh, where, where would we go? Say there was a fire on the stairs, where would we go? So, you know, I think it's just that kind of thing. And, and, and as they get older, they, you can obviously share more and, and they're able to handle it. But um, I just think making it just uh, almost like not something very serious, just a part of your discussion, maybe at the dinner table one night and say, you know, I was just thinking, maybe we should just think about this. And because Honestly, that preparation just gives you peace of mind is what it is. Um, You hope it never happens, but if it does, you're a heck of a lot more prepared to do something about
0: it. You know, and there's going to be, you know, I know that there's people listening who have been through it. And those are people who are listening that have never been through it and don't really think about it. And there's two parts to what I take away from this. You've got the actual emergency while it's occurring. You've got the fire, you've got the flood, you've got whatever's going on. And then you've got the cleanup afterwards, the the fallout, the result of that you're dealing with. And because those are really two different thought processes, you know, are you prepared, number one, for the actual emergency to the degree you can prepare for it? You know, do you have escape routes? Do you have, uh, you know, a survival kit or whatever you want to call that? But something that says, okay, if, if we're shut down and have to get away. Like, you know, I'll tell you right now, since Fort McMurray, uh, we always make sure our vehicles, we, as you know, as a couple have agreed that our vehicles will always have gas. We, we fill up at a half a tank, we refill, we refill, we refill. And, and, and it's, it's now just a habit. We don't think about it from a disaster point of view, but at the end of the day, when we consider that, you know, how many people in Fort McMurray, part of their challenge was, is their, their gas tanks were empty and then they couldn't get fuel I mean, it was a real, a real problem. And then they didn't have access to water. Do you have an emergency, even an emergency storage of water somewhere, you know, sitting on a shelf, something to get you through. So those are little subtle things that we get, but then the other side of it, and I think it's such an important thing to consider is where is your paperwork? You know, it's great that it's in a safe, awesome. But if you have to actually evacuate, it's hard to pick up a safe. Can you get into it and get out really quickly? Are you prepared to do that? those are just preparation in advance and i'm sure that there's police there's firefighters there's you know those those responders those emergency responders that must really just shake their heads in frustration and uh, real disappointment knowing that somebody didn't change the batteries in their uh, their uh, smoke detector you know or that they didn't have a smoke detector when those are the simplest things that can actually save lives. And then the other part of it is how prepared are you to clean up? You know, as, as a family, are you saying collectively, guess what? If you ever burn down, you can come stay with me. It could be just that simple. It's, you know, where, what are, where are those agreements and what are those kinds of plans? Am I kind of recapping this effectively, Leanne? Yeah,
1: yeah. no, it, it, and you know what? The sad part is that... Getting anyone to come out, like even when we're doing training in, in communities, say with the economic developers, saying to businesses, you know, hold a business continuity workshop, have them come and talk about the importance of a business continuity plan, show them what the elements are. It's really hard to get people to come to something like that because mm. ah, it's never happened to me, and or I got something else urgent I got to deal with today, so no, I'm not coming. So then you think, okay, so what I said is, how do you incentivize that then? Because maybe you can give them a better insurance rate if they've got a business continuity plan. Or maybe if you're a municipality and you have business licenses, you can give them an incentive, uh, some cash, a percentage off their annual fee if they have a business continuity plan. Because if maybe an incentive like that would actually encourage businesses to take it seriously, because just telling them you should do it, seriously, it's tough to get people to do it.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, and and I I can see that, and I I think I'd probably have problems. I don't know if I'd be inspired to attend something like that. I think I would because just my nature and my my curiosity and and the the contribution I want to be in terms of getting a message like this out, and and why I thought it was important to have on the podcast. Aside from your success as a business owner and who you are as a person, I mean, ultimately the message is is an interesting one, and I think probably if. People hung around and talked to enough, I don't want to call it, well, I guess victims, people who were at the effect of a, a major disaster, uh, whatever that disaster was, whether it be, you know, you know, when you, when you think about the impact of those individuals that went through floods, I mean, gosh, you know, in the U.S. and, well, anywhere. I mean, it's your whole home is wiped out and, you know, it's rebuilt and you have nothing but the shirt on your back kind of thing and whatever donations people have made to you. Where do you go? How do you, I mean, you get through it. Absolutely. You survive it, but there has to be some consideration for how do I make just beyond surviving? How do I take my survival number one and up the chances that I'm going to come through it strong and I'm going to come out the other side, uh, without, with, you know, with the least amount of damage, I guess, if you will, or the least amount of, uh, strain that I can given what could, what could happen.
1: Yeah, and you make a good point. I know someone mentioned to me once, they said, uh, because she had her own business, and she said, had she not had that insurance in 2013 for the floods, they would have been totally out of business. And she said, that saved their butt. And so she said, that 70, I think it was only 75 bucks or something she had to pay a year saved her. And I said, you know, it's probably businesses giving that message, saying the various scenarios, saying, if I had not done this, this would have happened. And, and so, you know, it's one thing for an insurance broker to sell it to you. It's another for a business to say, this is real. And, and I lived it and I'm giving this advice to you. So you don't have to live what I had to. Yeah.
0: And, and, and the insurance conversation is such an important one to really sit down and for people to understand what their policy is all about. What does it really mean And what's the insurance company's job? You know, we all think that at the end of the day, insurance companies are going to try to not pay that claim. They're going to find reasons to not pay the claim. That doesn't mean insurance companies are bad. It actually is just a responsible way for them to do business and to make sure they're doing their diligence on a claim. So I'm not going to get into the debate of whether that's fair or not fair. You're paying rates and all the things that you're doing. You're paying your premiums. But ultimately, understanding your insurance is your responsibility. And not leaving it to the broker to make sure that you're covered. You you have to either ask the right questions or seek the guidance to make sure you're asking the right questions, so that you do have the coverage that you need. And it isn't just okay; I've got insurance and I'm good. It's, it's more than that. You have to be responsible around it. So, Leanne, what other what other quick guidance will you give as we start to wind down the podcast and the conversation around disasters? I'm going, gosh, what it's what the heck am I doing talking about disasters? But it's it's. I still think it's a very important conversation. So what, what other tips would you give some of the listeners uh, today?
1: Hmm. Well, I think from an investment standpoint, I mean, it, you, you know they do due diligence and, and research. But make sure when you are looking at properties, Make sure you understand where, where they're located because location, I mean, we hear it location, 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 but it also appears to disasters um, because it might be in a, you know, one of the things that communities have to do a better job at is approving new developments in areas that they're actually putting people into harm's way. Like that needs to stop. So I mean, when you are going into community, make sure you are looking at, am I close to a floodplain? Find out if that river is, you know, it's a nice view, but does it flood? It could flood. Whether it's it's in a forest, those kinds of things. Is there a fire break? What are what are what are the city's plans? What you know when it comes to uh evacuation or do they have a good emergency plan? Do they have a good recovery plan? Like all of these things, it sounds like, oh my gosh, that's way too much. But there's things to think about when, when you're investing for sure, or whether it's as an individual at your own personal house or something as a rental, um, making sure that insurance thing is key, um, understanding, like practicing, making sure you've got up-to-date information on your renters and how to access them if you need to reach them. Uh, working with them in advance on on just different scenarios if this were to happen because honestly if I rent from you or someone else and you you're giving me you care about me more um, and want to work with me I'm probably going to be your tenant for a longer period of time you know those are it it sounds simple but when we're talking at a a time like this when there's no disaster it's much easier to have these conversations because if my house was burning right now, you trust me, I wouldn't be talking this calmly. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: it's so true. And, you know, I I think, you know, it it would be, I guess, you know, it maybe seems a little idealistic, you know, if one person actually takes action in hearing this and, and it, and it prevents a, a, a disaster or saves a life or makes a difference, then, then this would have been worth the conversation. You know, ultimately the first step in all of it is awareness and then having the conversation, doing something as opposed to absolutely nothing. If it means that you're going to fill your gas tank up more often, or if it means that you're going to have some water at hand or some dry food at hand, or you're going to have your documents in a place where you can quickly get to them, and or you're going to check your insurance policy to make sure that your insurance is actually covered for the range of things that can happen, then that's really important thing to do. And, you know, Leanne is that I appreciate that there's individuals in the world like you that have that social conscience that are, are pulled into these things that need to make a difference, that really need to step up and say, listen, you know, listen, economic development, you know, listen, city, listen, municipality, There's people that matter here. There's individuals, you know, that have lives and businesses that make an economy go around. And and we have to be on alert and be prepared for the, you know, the things that can happen. It's not inevitable, but, you know, ultimately shit happens. We live in a world where, you know, arguably, if you, whether you believe in climate change or not, things are happening, you know, Uh, and so we have to be paying attention to that. So I appreciate all of that part of it. Now, as, as we wind down here, Leanne, it, you know you're, you know, this isn't really the style of podcast they would normally do, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. We do some, I do, so, I like to always finish my podcast with some rapid fire questions, and uh, get to know you a little bit better from that perspective. And uh, you ready to go? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I've set you up. You're nervous. Okay. Here, <laughs> here we go. Don't worry about it. You got this. Right now, aside from your book what books are you reading and what do you recommend or what do you, uh, what do you give away even as a gift? Have you got a favorite book?
1: I actually, I mentioned I was down in British Virgin Islands. I actually was, um, had a chance to meet Richard Branson and I, his latest book. I just finished that. Um, and it's, oh, it's not even on, on my desk here, but I think it's called, it's um, uh, something about my virginity. It <laughs> caught, yeah, caught me, but it's his latest book. Okay. And it just really, I love his business model.
0: Yeah. You know, Richard Branson is often, you know, somebody that is mentioned by, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs. He's a, a pretty unique cat, you know, in, in how he built his businesses and his philosophies. He's a, he's certainly a, a good role model or a good individual to adopt some of those philosophies.
1: Well, and he was impacted by the hurricane. So, ah, so there you go. Yeah.
0: How about a inspirational quote? Do you have a favorite inspirational quote?
1: Too much that are given, much is expected. I think Spider-Man said it.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, what job do you do even though you hate it just because you're good at it?
1: <laughs> ugh, it's like housework.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hi. Well, that could,
0: could be. I mean, you know, there's... You, know, you but, sure? Ugh. Why do I do it? I know. I got it. I'm good at it. You
1: have to. Yeah.
0: What's your favorite swear word?
1: Ooh, not supposed to swear. Our kids make us give them money uh, if we swear. Wow! Mm. But you know, sometimes that F word is pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think F bombs are so appropriate, and and that is probably one of the most favorite uh, words uh, of my guest. And uh, but there's there's a, there is others, but uh, F bombs are you know they just cover a lot of ground, don't they? Yeah. You know, it was a. Uh, <laughs> I, I digress on a side story is that years ago in a business that, you know, one of the managers was, uh, really didn't like swearing. And so they, they like your kids. They said, okay, if you swear, it's going to cost you a buck. And uh, one of the staff walked up and threw a hundred bucks in the jar and say, consider this paid in advance for the inevitability. <laughs> thought it was brilliant. <laughs> so you might want to do that with the kids, perhaps give them 10 bucks yeah, and go. Great. Okay. <laughs> If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates?
1: Job well done.
0: On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you, Leanne?
1: Ooh, my kids would rank me high. They would. Um, I would say seven.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think you're too out there. What's the? Uh, what do you clean first? Your room, your desk, or your car?
1: Oh, I hate having a messy desk. So it'd be my office.
0: Okay. Do you have a favorite tune?
1: Uh, hmm. Like of all time? Sure. Oh, it would be YouTube Bono. still haven't found what I'm looking for. Favorite movie? Hmm. I liked Hidden Figures.
0: And Leanne, what are you grateful for? Life. Nice. I'm grateful for you as my guest today. And I'm actually grateful that we came to this topic. I think it's an important one. Probably uh, for some, it lands as, ah, why am I, you know, but it's important. And I'm grateful that uh, I met you and uh, you come to the podcast with the expertise that you have. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for getting this message out because uh, I mean, I truly appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Leon. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo@raincanada.com. At That's c e o r e i n canada.com. I look forward to hearing from you and until next time
1: Patrick, go.